0: This is ContraZoom,
1: where we go back and forth about film.
0: I'm Dakota Arsenault.
1: And I'm Rachel Ho.
0: On last week's show, we had our Fantasia Festival interviews. And this week, now that the fest is officially over, we will review some of the movies we saw. This is our second year in a row covering Montreal's Fantasia Fest, which is the best in horror and genre films. And once again, it was just so much fun this time around. Overall, Rachel, do you have any thoughts on this year's iteration, the the types of movies that they were screening, how it all sort of worked out for you, all that sort of fun stuff. I know we sort of talked about it a bit last week, but we'll kind of continue the conversation this week.
1: Yeah, I'm still a bit salty that I didn't actually go to Montreal and I didn't actually get to meet John Wu, or just see John Wu. I didn't want to meet him. Probably wouldn't have gone very well. I would have been very awkward if I met him. But I'm just glad that like I would have been cool to see him. But um Overall, I think it's cool. Like, I I appreciate. I mean, every film festival does this. Like, they bring out um some of their older like older movies, and they they might do uh what's the word? Not refurbishing it, but
0: restorations or maybe refurbish
1: restoration. Thank you. Um, of yeah, of older movies, and I I like that they like showed some of John like they showed Hard Boiled and like in in the theater, which I think a lot of people, unless you were in hong kong in the 80s i think it came out in like 84 or something like that um you wouldn't have seen it in a movie theater so it's kind of neat that they they put those um experiences out for people to have uh in terms of like my own experience it was fine like i it's kind of one of those things that when you do a distance um it you're not quite as immersed into it like i it's a very long festival actually like it goes on for quite a while uh, and I think being in Montreal would have been really cool. But next year, there's always next year.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I love longer festivals because it really means mm-hmm. you get the better chance. You don't have to feel like you have to cram everything in and you're trying to be like, well, yeah. I saw three movies on that day. Can I tell you about any of them? No, I can't. <laughs> so it's nice. That will that, be TIFF. I <laughs> like enter TIFF. That, That's that what was, it's going to be. <laughs> that was a not so subtle dig at TIFF.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so, yeah. and And it's sort of interesting because... Genre films have a bit of a a variety of quality, we'll call it. Uh, You don't always know what you're going to get. So it's it's sort of fun where you're like, well, I don't know, the the plot description sounds a little interesting on this. I'll give it a shot. And you kind of get blown away. And then other ones where you're like, oh, yeah, this is definitely my type of movie. And you're watching, you're like, oh, my gosh, that was kind of a slog to get through or what were they thinking sort of thing. So it's kind of nice that there's there's a bit more of a surprise element, and and I f- almost feel like you need to do a bit more homework when you're trying to decide mm-hmm. what you want to watch. I'm sure you can completely go on blind and be like, whatever, I'll watch anything that I, I can get access to, get a screen or two, whatever you want, and have a, have a blast. But I sort of feel uh, as covering the festival as critics or whatever you want to call what we do. Uh, that you almost have to be a little bit more prepared for a festival like this. TIFF, on the other hand, you you sort of know you're going to get like 50 prestige movies that are all going to be in awards contention. And within, you know, three months, everyone will have seen them.
1: I think that's one of the nice things about Fantasia, though, is that it is quite niche. Like, I think for the people who really enjoy it, you have to be really into horror, sci-fi, like action, whatever it might be. And you need to have kind of a deeper appreciation for it a- apart from just like, oh, that's a cool movie. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you kind of need to be like, oh, it, it's it's a micro budget. And so you want to see what they can do on a very, very tiny, if not, if not like a non-existent budget. Um, whereas like TIFF will have yeah they they have indies I shouldn't say that they don't have indies they do like they mm-hmm. have smaller movies as well, and they give that opportunity for for smaller filmmakers. but like you said, the majority of their movies are big budget they're big studio pictures um so yeah, and then kind of to your point of having to do a bit more research, I think that that's where uh the in person aspect of it is kind of better because if we were there and we just had a pass to just go to any movie that was playing right we would just look at the schedule and be like i have some time right now like i've got like two three hours to kill oh this movie's playing so i'll I'll just go and watch it kind of thing right because you're there and you know that like that's your sole purpose for being there Mm -hmm. um and when you you know we're lucky that we we would be able to get like a media pass so just grant us access to a bunch of films (laughs) um which is kind of nice for for the in-person experience versus when you're at home yeah like you're kind of you're a bit more discerning because you're right there can there can be some really bad ones because as much as i love the genre movies they're the ones that are so easy to mess up because some of them they just need a higher budget like that's just kind of the way it goes right like sometimes you especially for sci-fi every now and then you'll see something that's That defies that notion that like you need a big budget to do sci-fi because I don't think you need it, but it definitely helps. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you watch movies that are, you know, need good CGI or like even action movies that have the kind of the violent kind of gory element to it. Um, Like I just watched Bullet Train uh, not too long ago and they have some like crazy kill scenes in it and those would look crap if you didn't have the size of budget that they had, you know? So it's like, it's easier to mess up than just like a straight drama where you could just theoretically have two people in a room and it could be a fantastic movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. And uh, in a good way of looking at it either way, I I think Fantasia does do a a pretty great job of selecting movies that they know that their audience Mm -hmm. will like. And that really in turn means that we're more likely to enjoy the offerings that they have uh, not to Definitely. say that there weren't, you know, going through the, the program guide and being like, eh, that one doesn't really catch my attention. <laughs> Maybe that movie that I passed on was, uh, was excellent. It's true. Yeah, It's true.
1: You never know. That's kind of the beauty of a film festival, though, yes. isn't it?
0: Yes. But we're going to talk about five movies today, a couple of them that we both saw, a couple that only one of us saw. Uh, sort of give our, our overview thoughts on what we thought of some of the movies that we're screening during this year's Fantasia Festival. I think the first one that we should definitely dive into is a movie called Polaris. Now, if you listen to last week's episode where we did some interviews, one of them was with the director of Polaris, Casey Carthou. And Polaris was the festival's opening night film. And I th- I think it's pretty safe to say that both you and I had a, a really fun time watching this movie. It is, it's described as being a... Ecological, futuristic, dystopian movie. It's sort of like this mashup between Mad Max and uh, Logan and a few <laughs> other things. It's, it's got a whole bunch of crazy stuff going on. But basically, uh, the plot of it is there's this young girl who is the daughter of a polar bear. Just go with it, a real polar bear, real life polar bear, they don't use CGI for this, and they get separated, this little girl gets captured by this um, roving band of marauders who are all women, and she fights her way out of this captivity, and she eventually gets some help from an older woman who is sort of associated with the marauders, but not really, I think she just sells them gasoline for their uh, futuristic snowmobiles, and then from there, she's just trying to get her way back to her mother, who she believes is still alive, although she isn't totally sure because she sees uh, numerous polar bear pelts and she isn't sure if that's her mother or not throughout the film. So that's sort of the, the bare bones of it. But this is a super <laughs> – what? Sorry, go ahead.
1: Bare bones? Oh, yes. yes you, didn't, a, you didn't mean to do that, did you? No,
0: no. I made a, I made a pun <laughs> and I didn't even realize it. Damn. <sighs> But this is a – despite what I just said there, it is a very bloody and visceral movie that is pretty crazy. This this young girl who's played by Viva Lee has these – they're sort of like reverse knuckle rings, but they are uh, rows of what looks to be like polar bear teeth or something like that, mm-hmm. and she uses them – in like this palm striking fashion to like slit throats and stab people and things like that. And so that's where like I, I, the Logan comparison comes in. So if you've seen that, you know that the the young girl that Wolverine is trying to protect, she also has um, extendable claws in her hands. And so it's very much like that sort of action style where it's like this young girl uh, going absolutely bananas, murdering people in very brutal ways as blood is spurting from their throats. <laughs> <laughs> We both enjoyed talking with Casey Carthu. What were your thoughts on the film?
1: I really enjoyed it. I mean, I I thought Polaris. It's it's that kind of movie, even though it was their opening film. But it's one of those like great discoveries that you find in a film festival. That I mean, guarantee. Like I don't know if it would have come across our tables otherwise. Um, but it's I love the uh, the no no dialogue or I shouldn't say no dialogue because there is some dialogue in it and they do communicate with one another but um it's never in english and it's it's not in any kind of I shouldn't say a real language it's not it's a fictional language it's a language that they made up um for the film and it that i found that aspect of it really really interesting like i always find it i always find movies that find that have ways of making their characters uh communicate with one another um, even though they don't speak the same language, I always love when movies do that because I think far too often, a lot of movies or TV shows they take the easy way out and just revert back to English when it doesn't make sense. Like, how would they know? And I know that you're supposed to, you know, like kind of have a bit of suspension of belief on that side um, because they want to make they want to suit a North American audience or a Western audience. Um, but I love when movies just take that step of being like, you don't know what they're talking about, but yet we can fully understand everything that was going on. There's no subtitles in the movies, in the movie, um, it, You, but you get it. Like you absolutely understand what uh, Viva's character, Sumi, what her journey is. You understand the, the conflict that arises when she comes across that old woman. There's a frozen girl as well. Like you kind of get all of that. And I think that that's brilliant. Like I always find... It's tricky to do and but I I find it it's when you can do it right, it's done really, really well. And it's it, it just elevates movies, um, from that standpoint. So like and it elevates the storytelling of it.
0: Yeah, it was it was such a exciting movie that had a very unique vision and and one where you, you were sort of completely on board right from the get go. I know uh, it's funny, when I when I tried watching the movie, I was a little confused, because we got sent to Screener, like, I'm like, oh my gosh, they, they didn't include the subtitles, where's the subtitles track, how do I turn this on? And so I, like, skipped forward a little bit to see if there's maybe when other people were talking, if there were subtitles, and there wasn't, so I had to go back, and then I, like, reread the description of it, I'm like, oh, okay, I, I don't think there's supposed to be subtitles. And very quickly, you, like, it's, it's one of those things where, like in a in a good acting exercise you don't need to say the actual words to communicate emotions you could say gibberish mm-hmm. you could say whatever you want but if you're if you're doing if if your acting is strong enough where you're able to sort of communicate this is how i'm feeling this is what i this is what my needs are this is what i need from you how what is our relationship dynamic with your scene partner all that sort of stuff you don't need to actually know the words obviously you know we all love a good Aaron Sorkin script where it's nice and wordy and you know you love the good punchline and the zingers and all that sort of stuff but that doesn't that's not what makes a great movie it's a different kind of writing and when we talked to to Casey and she talked about how short the actual script was where it's really more of an outline than a script and working with the actors sort of create their own language it really comes across as as wholly unique and not something that we've really seen before I'd say
1: I agree. I mean I I can't remember a movie that I've seen um that does something like this. Maybe I have, I don't know. Maybe I'm trying to think now. Maybe there is one. But I mean this is I it's definitely unique. Like it's not something that happens very often. And um one other thing about the movie that I wanted to give a shout out was like it was shot all out in the Yukon. Um and not many movies get filmed out in the territories and this is I think I mentioned in the other episode that we did but this is a, the second movie that I watched this year that has that was filmed out in the um, in the northern parts of Canada um, and it's beautiful like it's so nice like I love that they're using that landscape of just this vast plain of snow and it it just looks crazy like it looks amazing cuz it's it seems endless at times but it's also there's just like such a beauty to it and they you and and casey films it really well and she's from i believe she's from the yukon or she's yeah, yukon so. or northwest yeah. territories yeah. yeah so i i love that they that she used that and then um in casey's another film that she did her first i think it's her first film she filmed um out in the territories but like in the summertime mm. so i love that you kind of have that contrast of you see what the territories can look like, what I think a lot of people don't think of when they think of the, the the Canadian territories. We just always think of a a winter tundra, but obviously it's not like that. It's not like that, you know, 12 months out of the year. Um, So I love that she kind of used the same ish kind of landscape, but in different seasons and really using both of those to make a message and um, to really paint her movie. So I think that that's really cool. And I, I think we should see more movies coming out of the, the uh the Nunavut Yukon Northwest Territories because um it's actually a really really cool place to set a movie and and to film
0: yeah I've long wanted to go out there anyways I know the differences between summer and winter there are are very stark and a lot of people think it's a Mm -hmm. you know a frozen tundra all year round but it's really not it's a stunningly beautiful part of this country
1: yeah definitely Expensive to get out there.
0: though. Yeah, absolutely. What did you think of the <laughs> overall aesthetic of the movie? The sort of it's Mad, it, mad, Mad Max esque, but they also have their yeah. own sort of unique style as well. The, the use of like rusty sheet metal to create the armor and uh, artillery sort of aspect look of this movie. Did that work for you?
1: Yes. And no, it's kind of difficult. I'm actually one of the, in the very, very small minority of people in the world who I'm not the biggest fan of Mad Max. Like Mm. I'm just not, I don't know why it's just never really appealed to me. Um, so when I watched it, when we were watching Polaris, I was like, it's very Mad Max like, isn't it? And (laughs) not to say that it didn't work for me, but just because maybe I just have a bad association with the fact that I don't really like the Mad Max movies. Um, but I, I like the creativity behind it. Like I like the idea You know, we, it's kind of, maybe it's a bit cliche these days, but I love now when we talk about apocalyptic stuff or end of worlds, you know, far way into the future, like hundreds of years into the future, we don't now automatically assume that it's going to be flying cars and Mm -hmm. really high tech. Um, A lot of times now we're, we're looking at the world and, and just probably because of the world we currently live in. um, We think of it as kind of bleak and one thing in this movie there's is a very clear environmental message um you mentioned it at the top it's like it's an eco eco horror eco action like you know like mm-hmm. if there's a, a very very strong environmental message throughout and so i like that the aesthetic that they're using is There's not much like the only things that, you know, who knows what happened to the rest of the humans because there's not very many people and there's no men in the movie either. So you don't, and it never answers what happened, but the things that have remained are these scrap metals, these, you know, things like the big storage lockers out out in the the middle of nowhere kind of thing and the tires because those things don't disintegrate. Like they don't, they won't decompose into Mm -hmm. the ground. So they're still around. And I like the idea that you're using those to create the snowmobiles, like you said, or the woman makes a shelter out of them. Um, things like that. So I, I like that tie in through it like that, that works for me in that sense.
0: Yeah. I, I agree with that too. And yeah, so it's sort of interesting where, you know, this idea of uh, things in the future. So you, you know, new materials are being made. So you're stuck with what you already have and how do you figure out how to repurpose mm-hmm. it? So their main, mode of transportation is mostly snowmobile. And so you imagine that you have these snowmobiles, they were found, they probably weren't in great working condition, they were able to kind of fix it up, but you know, it needed... Uh, a new hood over the engine and it needed new snow blades on the bottom and the seat needed to be changed and all this sort of stuff. And then you realize that you're, you're going to be either hunting or fighting other rival gangs. So you need a little bit of protection on because you're very vulnerable. And so you couldn't sort of see how the design was like a step-by-step of, okay, so we're adding this for this purpose. Now we're adding this for that purpose and how it all sort of comes together and makes a very unique lived in look. And I think that's the key where sometimes you'll watch, you know, sci-fi movies or whatnot in And everything is so clean. Like I know the, you know, the big joke about Mm -hmm. most space movies is everything is super clean. And that was kind of why Star Wars, the original one stood out was it actually looked dirty and lived in and used and all that sort of stuff. And that was so revolutionary compared to like the the 2001, you know, pure white aesthetic where there there is no dirt anywhere in the universe. (laughs) And so it was kind of fun (laughs) to sort of see, as you were saying, you know, the shipping containers and how that, you know, they're able to repurpose that into housing or what they're using it for other than just storing things in it and, and using, um, a construction lift to be a lookout tower and stuff like that, that really sort of adds to the look that made it really feel like it was actually thought through of, Oh, what do we, what do we actually need to make this look like a real world that people probably will live in, in the future?
1: Yeah. And I, I, liked as well like this idea that you you know you talk about the snowmobiles like they're still gas you know what they I mean like they still needed oil they still need gas and i find that like that to me was kind of a funny point in it where um for all of you know all of humankind is kind of been decimated to a to a minimal point and yet the one thing that is prevailing from our world is not just these materials that are there but like gas is still a very necessary commodity in their life. And that, that made me kind of laugh a little bit, but, um, but I completely agree. I like, you know, any movie that you can, when you jump into the world and it doesn't feel like it's, it just appeared out of nowhere for the first time. And we're the first people seeing it. Like there is, you know, something that's actually, um, I haven't seen it. So maybe I shouldn't even comment on it, but you know, that new Ryan Reynolds movie that was on Netflix, um,
0: Which one? Adam Project? I can't remember the name of it.
1: Yeah, Adam Project. So somebody put a picture up on Twitter of his apartment in Adam Project or his house in Adam Project. And it's just like showing how it doesn't look very lived in. Like it's very clear that it's a set, you know, that things were, it was built for a specific purpose to make it into a movie. Whereas, you know, what great set designers will do is they make um, any environment look lived in like it's like th- there's just blankets thrown around because before we saw the character come to the screen they were taking a nap or something like that do you know what mm-hmm. i mean like and i find that that polaris does that really well where it's like it's a very established world and they don't need to do much for us to to understand kind of the rules of that world and what's happening um because the, and they don't spend any time explaining it either which i think is really cool like they just they just go with it and eventually we catch on. Like you said, like with the, with the subtitle thing that you were talking about, like at first you're a bit like, well, that was kind of weird. And I mean, potentially if we had, I, cause you asked me about it and I, I didn't know either. Cause I, if we had just read the description a little bit closer, yeah. I'm sure we would, have we would have gone on. But like, in, imagine if we had just gone to the theater not knowing anything about it. I think like eventually the first few minutes you might be like, why aren't there subtitles? But then eventually you catch on as mm-hmm. to what's going on. Um, So I like that. Like I like movies that just they have a lived in world. It's clear that it existed before we as an audience were watching it and it will exist when the screen fades to black. And I like it's not that easy to do. And um, I mean, even shows or movies that are showing up on places like Netflix apparently aren't doing as good of a job of it. So kudos to them for that.
0: Absolutely. But uh, let's move on to the next movie. We're going to listen to you talk about one that you saw. You miss House
1: Um, so this was one, I, th- I think I'm safe in saying this is my favorite movie from the festival this year. Uh, it's called skin a rink. And if you grew up in a certain time, that word or phrase will be familiar to you from the Sharon Lois and Brandes. Um And it's by a Canadian director, Kyle Edward ball, who's out in Edmonton. And what I said at the very beginning um, of this episode, talking about like, movie genre movies that use a micro budget or no budget pretty much um that's pretty much this movie like there there is no budget more or less like it was it was done for very very little money um and it's purely based off of um balls it's like his his vision of what it was so he's a director that has gained a a bit of a following on YouTube of um, talking about nightmares and realizing other people's nightmares, like kind of visualizing them and illustrating them. Uh, And he does the same thing in this movie. So to me, there is a plot in this movie where in terms of there's these two kids, uh, they're in the house in the middle of the night and something is just kind of wrong in the house. Their parents are kind of gone. The dad, they talk about the dad and they say at one point, like, well, where's dad? And go, oh, I hope he's not, I hope, it, you know, whatever happened to mom didn't happen to dad. And it, they don't really explain what happened to mom. <laughs> um, and the whole movie is basically like the windows and the doors seal up. There's no more windows and doors. The cable stops working at some point. The phone doesn't work at some point. Um, and it, it literally is bringing to life a childhood nightmare that I'm sure lots of us had at least in fragments and the way that he shot the movie is I find really interesting like in he, there's never a wide shot of the living room that these two kids are living in. so and the two kids by the way are like four and six years old so they're quite young um, but there's no wide shot of you never see the two of them you never see their faces you see like their little feet sometimes underneath the couch You can see the back of their heads at times. Um, You might see like the corner of a lamp, but you'll never see the lamp on the table by the couch in in the room. Um, Kind of a fuller shot like that. And the idea of it is that the whole movie is shot from a kid's perspective and what a kid will see, but what also what you will remember from a nightmare. Like when you wake up, you don't really remember your dreams fully. Sometimes you just remember bits and pieces of it and you put it together. Um, And it's more, I find nightmares are more of like a feeling um, that you wake up and you just know you were scared, you know, something bad had happened, but you might not be able to really pinpoint exactly what happened or what made you there because it's a bit disjointed. All you know is that you came away from it thinking something was wrong. And this is the like that, the movie, this movie does that exactly. Like, it's pretty incredible to me that he was able to convey that feeling of it's very disjointed. It doesn't, like, if you'd really tried to follow it as a narrative, it kind of, not that it doesn't make sense, because that sounds really rude and negative in a way. Um, but I don't mean it like that. Like, I think it it's purposely not meant to kind of be a linear storyline. It is meant to be a bit haphazard and, and here and there and a bit frenetic. There's one sequence in particular. I've, I haven't been that scared watching a movie in a really long time. I genuinely had, like, a pillow in, on my lap and I was, like, hiding behind it. <laughs> I felt like, a, like I literally felt like a kid because I have, I haven't been that scared in a horror movie in a really long time. Um, it's his first movie that he's ever done that Kyle's ever done. And like, I think, I, I don't know. Like, I hope that the, it, this movie's gotten really good reviews out of Fantasia. Um, and I hope that he gets a lot more opportunity uh, for the next film, the film after that, because Uh, There's just something like it's something very intriguing and unique about his eye and the way that he can um, direct a film. And it's not easy to make a film. You come away with just a feeling, you know, that's like a vibe movie, right? Like you just kind of like you're vibing through the movie. I wouldn't call this a vibe movie necessarily, (laughs) but it is one that you come away terrified and You know, shaken, but like not because there was, like not because the particular story is scary. It's just the way that he frames it, the way that he designs it. It's very scary. And I don't normally get scared in movies, too. So this is, yeah, this was kind of a unique experience that I I genuinely haven't been this scared watching a movie in a really long time.
0: Now, how would you sort of describe the type of horror like i find with with Mm -hmm. horror movies there's there's different ways to elicit fear is it the the sort of use of music is it looming dread is it jump scares like what sort of aspects uh, are being employed
1: so he he purposely so the milk the the milk the movie is sent is set in 1995 but he uses a 70s aesthetic um, very purposely so it kind of is harkening back to 70s horror movies and there are a couple jump scares uh, when you talk about something like looming over you I think that that's probably the most accurate scary bit because you know I'm sure we all had this like when you're a kid in the middle of the night and you walk up the stairs and it's pitch black because you don't want like your parents to know that you're still awake Um, Or you're walking through like a hallway and it's really dark and your eyes start to kind of play games with you and that you think that there's something moving in the in the dark. That's exactly what he does. And it's like there is this thing in the house that you never see. And it's just kind of but it's there and you can feel it. And even the way he films it with like, you know, he he filmed it in digital, but he graded it to look like film. So. You see kind of the the grain that's swimming around that you, we, you would have gotten on VHS tapes and you can like I swear to God I saw something moving. <laughs> I actually interviewed Kyle and he says that like he didn't put that in, but he has heard from people that like there is something moving, that they everyone thinks that there's something moving and it's just it's just our brains. like it's just our, our minds playing tricks on us. So I, I would say probably the looming thing, but there are a couple jump scares as well.
0: Creepy. Yeah, that really sounds like it's it's preying on it uh, our, our deepest childhood fears. And that's the unknown.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought I was like so kind of like it's the whole thing we were talking about of just like digging through the catalog and I always filter out Canadian movies because I'm just curious to see what a festival like what kind of Canadian offerings they have and particularly Fantasia being a Canadian festival like I expect there to be a good amount of canadian films and there were um but this one just stuck uh, stuck out because of the name Marink, like it obviously reminded me of of the sharon Lewis and brand thing but i remember reading the description and i thought oh, i wonder if dakota would like this probably not and then i watched it and i remember thinking no like there's no way dakota would ever want to watch this
0: yes my my aversion to like total get into your soul horror uh keep you from sleeping is is definitely not uh, up my alley
1: i also watched it at like midnight which probably wasn't the best thing to do but that was was a scary movie you want to watch a scary movie at nighttime in the middle of the night that's the whole point
0: i think the best time to watch a scary movie is during the middle of the day with the curtains wide open (laughs) and the lights on
1: (laughs) The curtains wide open lights on plenty of people around. Yes. And you're going to go outside afterwards and get your mind off and do something fun. Exactly. Not go
0: straight to bed afterwards. (laughs) Exactly. All right, so the next movie that we're going to talk about is one that you actually saw during the Toronto Japanese Film Festival and I saw during Fantasia, and so I prohibited you from talking about it during that episode. So if you want to listen to us talk about other Japanese films, you should go back and listen to that episode. But uh, we're going to talk about Baby Assassins, finally. And this was a, a, a very interesting movie. It sort of... It it sort of is set up to be a, you know, John Wick, Atomic Blonde-esque type movie of really uh, well choreographed fight sequences. You you were mentioning Bullet Train earlier. That's sort of another one. Same director, David Mm -hmm. Leitch. Um, And we get these two young girls who are, are fresh out of high school and they are also assassins, and I guess the implication is they've been assassins for a little while because they're really good at their job, and now that they're done high school, high school was their cover. Now that they're done high school, they need to find part-time jobs, they get their own apartment building because they're not living at home anymore, and so they have to look like they blend in with society, and so you get this really interesting dichotomy of they're very good at killing people, and you see them kill a lot of people in various fashions. Whether it's you know um, with their with their hands with with weapons with guns things like that knives, uh, and then you also get these like very interesting meetings where they're meeting with their sort of handler from the assassins agency, and it's like the most boring bureaucratic stuff. <laughs> of like oh you got to make sure you're getting a job how's that going yep and they kind of sound like they're a parole officer basically and like both of these girls Mm -hmm. do not want to be there at these meetings at all (laughs) and eventually sort of devolves into almost like uh, a group therapy session like a a couple's therapy session when whenever they meet the handler where they're like fighting and they don't want to be roommates anymore and all this sort of stuff and the handler's trying to like get them to work through their problems and actually deal with things so it's really funny um but this is a japanese film it's called Baby Assassins, as I said. And I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Like you, you get these, you know, it's, it's so easy to kind of just say like the John Wick Atomic Blonde sort of extended fight sequences where you get um, the camera at a uh, medium close-up so you actually get to see the actual fights with not a ton of cuts. And then every once in a while you'll get these really cool camera movements where it's like swooping around them. But it doesn't... Make you lose your orientation of what's actually happening because that's the biggest criticism with modern fight choreography is you have no idea what's actually happened. You, you know, there's the famous Liam Neeson jumping over a fence and it's like 11 takes for him to jump over a single fence. And you're like, oh, my God. And you watch fight sequences and it's just like edit, 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 edit of like every time a punch is thrown and someone's getting, you know, getting a contact with a hit and all that sort of stuff. And so you have, you can't, you can't see anything. And so it's really nice. Every once in a while we get these movies where you actually just let the action breathe. And it's such a relief, a breath of fresh air where you can actually feel like you can enjoy these types of action movies. You're like, I don't care about the plot. I just want to see like some really cool action stuff. And this gives it to you.
1: Yeah. And I love that. Like, it gives you all the action. But then, like you said, like, it is very funny as well. Like, there are moments of just like, I mean, in terms of the story, I I guess you don't really care as much like if the the girls stay together or whatever, like, do they stay roommates? Like, that's not kind of the big plot point of it. But it is funny. And um, I I love that you pointed at the scene about or the, the few scenes where the handler comes in, and the two girls just look as any bored teenager looks when a, an adult is telling them that they have to do something like, mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, you have to make a plan. You have to, do, And they're just like, I, I just, this is ridiculous. This is taking up so much. Time. And the, it's, you know, obviously the hilarity of it is that they're talking about killing people and like being assassins. And yeah, I love this movie too. I really, really enjoyed it when, um, when I watched it at the Japanese festival and I was looking forward to talking about it. Um, so I'm glad that you finally got to watch it, so that we could. Um, but I, I mean, it's an easy sell for me. I'm a big fan of of um, those John Wick, nobody, you know, Atomic Blonde, Bullet Train, like th- those types of movies. I really enjoy them. Um, and then add on the fact that it's like two young girls, which I, I think is great. Like I, you know, two very unassuming, unsuspecting, um, just high school kids. And uh, yeah, and add on like it's it's funny. It's very funny, and like that's something that I think some of the other movies don't those movies that we mentioned, they don't not, not that they're not funny. They have funny moments, but this one I think is like consistently funny. It's mm-hmm. not just funny moments. I actually would consider it borderline comedy. Cause yeah, all, all of it's very satirical and um, there's a lot of like great gags and just their, their nonchalance is what makes is what really sells the movie.
0: And I think one of the things that sort of works is, you know, every, every time, like not to say that, um, women can't be action stars or things like that, but sometimes you'll watch a movie where you'll have someone, I'm just going to use, for example, atomic blonde, even though it wasn't like that. You have someone like Charlize Theron, who's a very petite woman, you know, taking down all mm. these big burly men. And you're like, okay, but in reality, how does this sort of work out? You know, you're dealing with a lot of martial arts is based on uh center of gravity and weight and all that sort of stuff. And how you control that really matters. And in atomic blonde, they, they make it work and there's, you know, one quite a brutal sequence in in the hallway one where she really gets her sort of ass handed to her as well, and so it, it's it's more believable. And so here you look at this and you're like, how do two very tiny Japanese high school girls how how are they going to handle this sort of choreography? And I think they do a good job of. Making their fighting style work for them, a lot of it is based on elements of surprise and the fact that they have a bit of agility and more flexibility than some of their male counterparts because most of the people that they're fighting are, are men. And so they're able to use stuff like there's there's this opening sequence that ends up being a bit of a fantasy sequence where uh one of the girls is using a backpack as a weapon. And so that sort of harkens back to like the born identity sort of thing where you're using whatever items are around you to your advantage. And and I think it works out in the long run because they're able to use their their smallness to get around smaller spaces. And being able to, you know, dive through like aggressors' legs and things like that. And then on the counterpart, there's this also side plot of the Yakuza. And yes, they use guns and sort of stuff like that. But then the main person that we're following from the Yakuza is the daughter of the boss, who's basically the same age as these other girls. So we get to sort of see a similar action style from them. And they end up having a big final fight at the end. So all that sort of stuff really comes together. But all in all, you believe what the action is happening—that that could happen in real life. Do you agree with that?
1: Uh, yes, but I am going to make a tiny correction on you before Bill can. Um, Charlize Theron is not a petite woman; she is like five she, ten.
0: <laughs> I mean, I mean more not, like she, muscle mass size.
1: She is, she is like thinner. She's a model, yes. but like she is. I think what made her, makes her work, particularly as an action star, is the fact that she is quite tall. Yes. Um, and so is able to do a lot that someone quite short, like myself, would like find a bit difficult to do, or like you wouldn't have the same skill set as she does. Mm-hmm. Um, one example I always like, um, of, kind of smaller females uh, fighting and, and them making it actually realistic is uh, John wick Two, So they have Ruby Rose is in it and she plays the mute. And there's a, in the, I think it's right towards the end of the movie. And they have like in the hall of mirrors kind of thing, that kind of fight um and at one point keanu just picks her up and just like chucks her across the room basically (laughs) against against the mirror because but like that's realistic it's like he is like keanu is like what six two something like that um and i think ruby rose is probably around my height which is about five two um which is lying i'm like five one and a half but she's about that and um so you know like it is realistic that like if you don't play your cards properly, if you don't do it properly, like you could just get completely manhandled. But like you said, like one of the great things in Baby Assassins is, yes, they're small, um, but they don't get, they are skilled to the point that they don't let themselves get to the point of being manhandled all the time anyways. Like there are obviously moments where um, somebody just bigger than them, not necessarily stronger than them, but bigger than them is able to to take them and take them down in different ways. But um, yeah, I think it's a great showing of, You know, what, how you can use females in action movies where it's not just about pure strength and pure brawn. Sometimes it's about being clever, being a bit agile and acrobatic, which Baby Assassins does very well,
0: I think. Yes. Now, when, at the time that we recorded our Toronto Japanese Film Festival episode, we were talking about a movie called Midnight Swan, and there is one sequence in particular. Uh, well, there's a few scenes in particular where, to make money, this young middle school girl goes <sighs> and gets photos taken of her in dress-up costumes for creepy, pervy older men. And you mentioned that Baby Assassins has a bit of a similar scene to that as well, and you were curious to talk about it once we once I ended up seeing it. <laughs> and so I saw it, and uh, basically it's sort of this yeah, – Imagine a cat cafe, but instead of cats, that the girls are cats. And that's kind of what it is. And so they're acting all cutesy and, you know, they're uh, treating their male clientele as infantile because that's what's adorable. Um, I guess the best way to describe it would be like if you were to call it like a daddy cafe sort of thing. Oh my God. Am I wrong though? Because that's basically how they're sort of treating (laughs) this male clientele. It is, yeah.
1: Uh, And all the male clientele, I should point out, are like middle-aged men as well. Yeah.
0: And so they like play board games with them, but they're playing like very young children's board games. Not like – they're not playing Scrabble. They're, you know, um, playing like – I can't even think of what they're playing. But like stuff that you could play with a four-year-old. And you know, they're Candyland pretend, land or something, yeah. And they're pretending to act stupid, I'm like, oh, hee hee, I can't figure this out. Oh my gosh, you are so smart! I can't believe you won again. Um, it's just sort of a bit of a bit of an indictment on, on Japanese culture that you are having these girls who literally just graduate high school, and their coworkers look about the same age. Of you are probably having girls that are between seventeen and nineteen working at a job like this, and just it's just like, Ugh. what is is what what is, yeah, what is wrong crazy. with some people?
1: It is super creepy. And, you know, I'll segue actually into the next movie, which is My Small Land, because My Small Land had a very similar scene (laughs) as well, where um, the main character in the film, she's a high school student. um, And I think she's in her final year, like they talk about her about um, applying to go to do the entrance exams, um, to go to post-secondary. And um, she needs money, and so one of her friends is like, "Oh, like come with me, and we can go to karaoke." And they just sit there and do karaoke with um middle-aged men, and it's like high school k- kids in their school uniforms, um, and just singing karaoke. And they're and the girl's like, "I get paid to do this." Like, you just sit there, and then she does it one time herself. And then in one scene, the guy's like, "I'll pay you three thousand yen if you let me hug you, like five thousand yen if you let me kiss you." Yeah. And he's like, okay, she, she's like, okay, fine. Um, she agrees to the hugging. And he goes, okay, five minutes. And it is the creepiest, like, it's, so I found, like, I, I messaged you kind of straight away when that happened when I was watching this movie. Because um, I found it really, it's not amusing, it's not the right word, but it's just, like, interesting that baby assassins, Midnight Swan, like, they all had this kind of scene. And I said this during when we were talking about Midnight Swan, which is, it doesn't surprise me that these things are real. Like it it is a part of the culture that I am aware of. And like, and I know that it is, it is a thing, but I do find it interesting that it's been, and it's been a thing for a while, I should say. Like, it's not like a new thing that just popped up. It's been, it's been like this for a very long time. Um, But it's, it's interesting to me that like, filmmakers are so brazen to just include it in their film. And, and to be clear, none of the, in all three of them, it is meant to be played as like creepy. Like it's, it's meant to, cause there's at least one person in those, in each of those movies that is not on board with what's going on. They're kind of like the new person into it and they're just like, what, this is kind of weird, isn't it? Um, but the fact that it's getting included and it's kind of like so open it's kind of odd. That to me is the odd thing that like, it is so well known and it is such a, it's, it's become almost just like a given that this is a thing versus we should probably try to stop this <laughs> and, and make this not a thing. Um I saw another movie. I think it was called, uh, Oh uh shoot it has the word purple in it. It was a Korean movie and they did something similar with young girls going to karaoke with like creepy middle-aged men and getting paid to not even to sleep with them, but it's just to, um, entertain them, I guess, like just like sing along with them and and play the role of the very subservient young girl. Um, And it is super, super creepy. Mm. Um, But yeah, so I'll keep talking about My Small Land. Then So this movie is, it's it's another Japanese movie. um, But the interesting bit here is that it focuses on a Kurdish family living in Japan, who are trying to get refugee status in the country. Um, and they have three young children who all grew up in the Japanese culture because they've been there for a while, and they all speak J- Japanese or they're learning how to speak Japanese. The youngest um, in the family is learning how to speak Japanese, and it's 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 a very quiet movie. Like I was thinking about the. Uh, um, what was that movie? Sorry, a, a flickering life and how you and I were saying, so that was another movie that we saw at the Toronto Japanese film festival. And you and I were talking about how a lot of Japanese movies they are so dramatic mm-hmm. and they're so long and they're so kind of like overtly dramatic. I find my small land is it kind of the antithesis to that where it is, it's long. Um, but it was a very, very quiet drama, which I don't normally associate with Japanese Dramas, um, quite frankly, and it's funny because at times it kind of lags behind because it is so quiet. Um, But it's a really interesting, it's a very very interesting uh, story to focus on and a situation to to make a film about because I think especially in the West when we talk about um, when we talk about refugees, most of us are thinking especially in recent years, like Syrian refugees, mm-hmm. right? Like refugees that are coming from uh, mainly Africa, you know, and, but, and, and we also think of them as going to Canada or going to the States or Britain or something like that. Um, but the idea that, you know, this happens all over the world and to different groups of people and, and, in. Every country, basically, every developed country will always have people wanting to get uh, refugee status in them. Um, and the movie is just about a, a young family that what happens when the refugee status, um, the the visa doesn't come in. And what happens to the family that, especially for the kids who have grown up there. Um, and that is now effectively their home. And it's a new, and they also talk about bridging different cultures. Like she is Kurdish. And so she is Muslim, but she's also quite Japanese in many ways, because that's what she grew up in and and that's the culture that she's been raised in. Um, So it's an interesting movie and uh, definitely one that I I think is worthwhile to watch.
0: Nice. Yeah. That was, that was one that uh, wasn't on my radar at all, but it's, it's always nice kind of being able to find these ones that probably not a lot of people are talking about or, or or seeing Mm -hmm. and being able to sort of share a little bit of light on it too.
1: Definitely, but also Japanese movies. Let's do less of those creepy things. Or actually, we should really saying Japanese government and police. Please do something about that because it's gross.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's sort of <laughs> it's sort gross of that weird thing of uh, are are these filmmakers just shining a light on them? Are they? condoning them because it's so common in society like it raises some interesting questions at least in midnight swan you know uh the police were involved it seemed like they were trying to shut Mm -hmm. it down afterwards
1: yeah true
0: true this cafe in baby assassins really is it any different than you know something like um I don't want like a Hooters or a Tilted Kilt or some sort of, you know, yeah, bar sure. like that where the women wear sexy uniforms, things like that. Is, is there really much of a difference between that, whether you're objectifying someone for one reason or another, you're still objectifying? Um, yeah, I, so I, I don't I don't really know the answer. I'm not Japanese. I've never been to Japan, so I can't really comment on the um, proliferation of weird places like that
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i i I don't know i think there's it definitely like kind of speaks to i mean like the legalities of it aside like let's assume that the the girls working in those cafes are um of the age of majority um but there is just kind of a weird cultural thing of saying like these young girls are supposed to act like idiots they're supposed to act like children and that they don't know anything in order to make these middle-aged men feel better to make them feel like they are superior that they are smart that they are strong that they are all these things um yeah and i i, I mean that's going down a different territory but it it is something that never it doesn't ever sit quite right with me and i don't think it sits quite right with a lot of people but Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like, like I said, in my small land, they also condemn it. Like, they show it as being not a good thing. Um, The police don't get involved, but there is a moment where she does try to get away, and it's like it's very clear that what he is doing is not right, and it's she's uncomfortable with it, and she's getting trying to um, extricate herself from the situation. So, yeah, I, I I don't know, Fabio Assassin. Do you think it's condoning it or just showing it?
0: Um that's tough to say i feel like baby assassins Midnight's one is definitely condoning it not condoning, condoning it. Yeah. um whereas um, condemning condemning, condemning me, yes yeah. condemning to be more clear uh baby assassins i don't think it is either condoning or condemning i think it's just sort no. of showing it um yeah the yakuza boss goes with his son and he seems to really love it and then he gets offended by something and ends up trying to hold the place up and and all that sort of stuff. And we get a bit of action because one of the, one of the baby assassins works there. And so she does her assassiny thing uh, to help out the, her coworkers, but she seems to really enjoy working there uh, meeting other young girls like her. There's a few bonding moments about, you know, what kind of lunch snacks you bring and all that sort of stuff. So I would say baby assassins is probably more on the condoning side, scale of things than condemning, at least, I guess, because with the assumption of they are all of legal age and are able to choose to work there, whereas, you know, comparing My Small Land and and, um, Midnight Swan, it seems like it's more, not quite against their will, but maybe a little bit more coercion is being involved, uh, giving money to people who probably don't have an avenue to make other forms of money and things like that and how you're going down to a creepier and seedier route very quickly. Whereas with Baby Assassins, it seems to be what you see is what you get.
1: Yeah, I think a good distinction too is in Baby Assassins, like you said, it's a job. Like it's a pro- yes. it's a cafe. It's a proper establishment. It's, it is something. Whereas in um, Midnight Swan it's a very under the table thing. Like it's something that I wouldn't say it's a job. Um, it's just something that they kind of found out like they, the, the, the girls in it find out about it through social media. And in my small land, it's something that goes on in karaoke bars, but it's not like the karaoke bar is like, they're not a part of it, but they, uh, they allow it to happen. Like they know what's happening, but they're, they're not the ones like hiring these girls. Mm-hmm. Um. So it's it is slightly different where it's like the two of the, those situations are a bit more under the table um, versus baby assassins, which is your, you know that's your job. Like you, like they were supposed to find a job too, so they found one.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I I don't really know what else I can <laughs> add about the <laughs> that sort of stuff. Um, it, it's just
1: funny though that I think between the three, like between the two, it's like we kept this kept coming up as like in the 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 japanese movies that we watched this year like we it's come up i mean more times than i would have expected it to uh like in 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 the films but in in like in different ways too which is why i think we both found it slightly fascinating
0: So I'm going to talk about the the last movie that uh, we're going to talk about on this show, and that's one that I saw, and it is a movie called The Topology of Sirens. It's a it's a very interesting title, and a movie that I quite liked, but one that I know probably is not going to be for everyone. This is a very quiet movie. There's not a lot of dialogue. It mostly focuses on one person, sort of. Trying to understand a bit of a mystery that she has come across, but not a mystery that is life-changing, life-altering, life-or-death sort of situation. Basically, you have this uh, woman who moves into a house that used to belong to her aunt, who has passed away, and now... She has inherited, I guess her her father inherited, it and is allowing her daughter, her adult daughter, to live in there. Uh, she seems to be somewhat associated with the experimental music community, and she herself is a piano teacher. And when she is moving into this house, in the closet, it's locked, and she fa- she managed to pick open this this closet opens it and there is a hurdy-gurdy a hurdy-gurdy is an instrument it sort of looks a bit like an accordion but not quite Uh, if you look it up you'll probably have seen pictures of it before you just didn't know what it looked like or if you listen to clips of what it sounds like you'll understand it uh you've probably have heard it before it's it has a bit of an ominous tone to it but she's trying to figure out how did this instrument get there and who placed it there? Was it her aunt? She starts trying to play it. It doesn't quite work. And she's fiddling with it. And there is like a, a panel where you can keep extra parts for this instrument. And she opens it and there's some clues. And so then she's just trying to figure out where do these clues come from? And so it leads her to different places. It leads her to this TV station that basically airs. People send in video cassette of whatever and they just play it over the air so it'll just be you know a whole bunch of commercials from 50 years ago or someone's home movies or just white snow static and that's what they'll play and so it's this very interesting aesthetic that they're they're playing with and then she goes to like an antiques dealer is trying to find information of where this hurdy-gurdy might have come from who might have owned it bought it all this sort of stuff and so it's got this noir-esque style to it as far as trying to follow clues and understand where they come from and sometimes leading to dead end so movies like paul thomas anderson's inherent vice or the andrew garfield starring under the silver lake where you're you're following this sort of noir mystery but the clues don't really add up and you're sort of left more confused than not this movie is sort of similar to that but a lot of it deals with atonal noises and she finds these little mini cassette tapes and you're listening to it and they don't really make sense and it's just captured audio, ambient audio of, you know, a baseball game being played by the local college or the radio station and, and stuff like that. So there, there there's a whole bunch of, like, really interesting noirish stuff, but, like, it's a very low-key movie with not a ton of action, not a ton of adventure, all this sort of stuff, and then eventually towards the end... You know, the movie is called The Topology of Sirens. Sirens is not referring to police sirens, but rather the mythical creatures that would lure men in through their song and then kill them, sort of mermaids if you if you will. And we get this extended sequence that it takes a little bit to figure out what it is, but it's actually a flashback and there's a bit of magical realism going on with these sirens they don't speak they just kind of are wandering around this world and you could and it's it's interesting cuz the performances they they don't they're not from here so it's like an alien coming to earth the first time and they're sort of struggling with basic functions that we don't think about on a day-to-day life as human so it's just very interesting and we sort of see that maybe they're the ones involved with setting up this mystery and we don't really learn all the details but it really is uh, I feel like this is uh, a common saying on our show. It's a vibe. And <laughs> so if you, if you're, if you're interested in ambient droning music, sounds, sound landscapes, a bit of a mystery where you're not quite going to know everything that's going on. Um, but definitely in the noirish vein of things, it's definitely a very interesting movie. And I think people of that, genre would really enjoy it but it's not going to be like your edge of the seat thriller it's not gonna be something like zodiac where you're wondering who the killer is and you're trying to figure it out and all this sort of stuff all that excitement it's it's definitely more inherent vice under the silver lake where you're like hey i've got five different things and i don't know if any of this connects but we're gonna assume that it does somehow but I really enjoyed this movie, and it was a very unique one. I don't know what the audience is for it, but uh, I hope some people eventually find it and enjoy it as much as I did.
1: Kind of sounds like to me, so without having seen this movie, but f- just from your description, it kind of sounds like Memoria, which I don't, I don't think you've had a chance to see that yet.
0: No, I have not, um, but I do remember seeing uh, some people sort of comparing it to Memoria as well.
1: Yeah. It sounds very similar in that sense where there's a bit of a mystery, but it's also, it's a very vibe. It's a vibe. Um, And it's about sound. Like it's just about um, Tilda Swinton's character, like chasing a sound effectively. And it it is that very, I don't I don't, don't, I'm, I'm not good with audio words, (laughs) but it's like, like, it's just, it, it, it is like ambient sounds. Like it's just like a big, like kind of, bonging noise like it's interesting like i i watched it It, i'll be honest it's not really for me i don't really i'm glad i saw it because i think it's it's a very unique kind of storytelling way um uh it's a unique film um but yeah it, it didn't really connect so when you when you told me about this movie i was like oh maybe i should watch it and then i thought it doesn't really sound like my thing so um, but yeah, I'm glad, I, I'm glad you liked it though. And like whenever Memoria gets to Vancouver, I don't know if it already has, but, um, you should definitely watch it. Cause I think you'd enjoy Memoria actually. I think you'd really like that one.
0: Yeah. I really wanted to catch it when it was playing in Vancouver for it's like one week. Oh, it
1: already its, did play.
0: Yeah. During its um, road show. I missed it. Uh, it was back in like May or something like that. I can't remember exactly when it was, but a while back. Uh, but yeah, it, I, I I think that this would not be your type of movie, but that's not to say <laughs> it's a bad movie or one that people mm-hmm. would find enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would probably watch it and, and maybe be like, oh, I'm bored by this. There's nothing really happening. And not to say that I don't think you would appreciate it, but a lot of it has to do with the sonic landscape, and that is what yeah. you... That's sort, of, that, that's sort of the one way to sort of uh, latch onto this movie. Like, she goes to... I said at the beginning, she's involved in the experimental music community. She goes to like friends performing. She'll go to a restaurant and there's a guy playing in the background. And it's all this sort of ambient drone like music where it's, you know, one sustained note or like a couple notes. And that's all that's really playing and no singing, nothing like that. Or using looping techniques, all that sort of stuff that's going on. So if you like that kind of music, this is definitely your type of movie. And if if you have the patience for that music, you have the patience for for this movie as well. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting.
1: Because what what is it about? Sorry, I was just going to ask you, like, what is, what is it about these movies though that draw you? Is it the noir aspect of it? Is it the because I know you're really into music? So is it that aspect or kind of the more experimental filmmaking side of it?
0: Uh, you know, what? I would say it's kind of a little bit of all three. the The noir aspect yeah. is probably when I was reading the log line of it was the thing that caught my eye. So mm-hmm. that's what that, that drew me in. And then because I enjoy that sort of ambient music texture, it is very easy for me to, to watch this and, and enjoy it. I've, you know, I've gone to a couple, uh, concerts that, that feature music like this stuff, like Godspeed, you black emperor, where, you know, songs will last, you know, 15 to 20 minutes and it's just one song into the average person. It probably just sounds like it's, you know, they're just playing a single note and that's all that's really happening. But, uh, <laughs> I enjoy that. And I think the noir aspect really helped. And it's, it's, it is a very unique mystery and one that, I kind of want to revisit and wonder if there's a bit more clear answers now that I've sort of seen it before and can look better for clues. But, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think i am just sort of drawn to all the aspects of it. And the one thing I was going to end on about it is the director of this movie, I believe it's his first feature film, but he's worked previously mostly as a uh, sound supervisor. So it's no shock that a sound supervisor who gets to direct a movie will make it about sounds. (laughs) (laughs)
1: that's it It sounds like a perfect movie for you like it sounds like it's a very like i mean this is what we've always been saying about fantasia right like it it is very niche in its own way and within the festival there's like a lot of niche categories so i think it's cool when you can find like a little hidden gem such such as this because you probably much like you know um some of the other movies it's like it wouldn't have come across your table otherwise so i think that's cool
0: awesome yeah so those are five movies that we want to talk about during from this year's Fantasia Festival. If you haven't listened to our interviews with the Polaris director Casey Carthu and Dark Nature director Berkeley Brady, please do so it is our last episode. I will be including a link to that in the show notes. I will also be linking to reviews written by both Rachel and I for movies that we talked about and a bit more. Uh, All that said, you sort of teased, I don't know if anyone caught it, you you threw in there that you did an interview. Do you know when that's going to be coming out, Rachel?
1: I'm hoping next week. Um, I interviewed Kyle Edward Ball and as well as Viva Lee, actually, for Polaris. So both of those are going to, the Kyle Edward Ball interview will come out on that shelf. And the one for Viva Lee will be on the Toronto Film Critics Association website.
0: Yes, we get it. You're a big, uh, important film critic now. You don't mm-hmm. need to rub it in.
1: I need to mention it in at least every episode. I think that that's part of the membership. Yeah, is it? Do, do I that. need to
0: start crediting yeah. you as that? I I
1: think I mean, probably, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think when I signed on to join, I think that they said you must mention it at every opportunity that you have. Just... Just mention TFCA and don't even uh, say what the acronym is. Just it's TFCA. That's all. No, no, TFCA's own Rachel Ho? Yeah, obviously. Yeah, because I'm the only one. <laughs> yes, there. of course. Like, I'm obviously the most important person in that, in that entire association.
0: Of course. Well, Rachel, where can people find you in your work? Sorry, TFCA's Rachel Ho. Where can people find you in your work? <laughs>
1: Uh, You could go to rachelkh.com, and I'm on Twitter at underscore rachelkh.
0: Awesome, and you can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. If you saw anything during Fantasia Festival, let us know your thoughts. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music, and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out. Mm -hmm.